We're continuing this morning our series about the church and about our strategic plan. Almost uh, wrapping it up now. Today's topic is worship. Pastor Steve will preach again next week on on the strategic plan, and then we'll move back into the Gospel of Mark as we get closer to Easter. I think there are a few things in modern Christian life in America that seem more contentious and confused than the topic of worship in the church. It seems to me that in general evangelical sort of our theology, not here, but, you know, generally, is it suffers from a lack of deep biblical reflection. And yet, at the same time, it's also something that people have strong feelings about, that they uh, tend to be particularly passionate about. And, of course, you know, part of the history of uh, evangelical Protestants in America was, was the so-called sort of worship wars of the 80s and 90s. And even though much of that, I think, is in the past, there's still this sense of, even then, of a, of a weak theology about what are we doing as a church, what are we called to be doing on Sunday mornings, how does that fit in, and how does it work? What does God want for His church? And of course, we don't have a lot of time to go into all of those issues this morning, but I hope in this sermon to reflect on what is corporate worship as, uh, as we would grow, as part of our discipleship, as what it means for us to be believers uniquely uh, as, an, as a part of our week. When, today, I think when Christians talk about worship, we all, what we sometimes mean is music. And what we sometimes mean is a particular style of music, a particular kind of music. There is worship music that's a genre. But God's Word shows us something bigger, that worship is more than music. And worship is something more than our particular styles or preferences about music. The text this morning that we'll look at is Psalm 73. It's on page 414 in the Pew Bible, and of course there's also a a sermon outline. But before we get to the text, I want to just, more than usual, I want to give some introduction here and some distinctions as we think uh, about worship. So uh, let's pray. We'll ask God to teach us, and then we'll uh, start looking at these things. Please pray with me. Father, we do want to live our lives before you. We do want to be people who, uh, who are, are humbled before you. And we want to do so as a body, uh, in unity, uh, to lift you up. And so we pray that you would teach us from your word and that you would guide our thoughts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you take a bird's eye view of what the Bible says about worship, if you look kind of at what the what the words are used, the verbs used to describe what people do when they worship, you kind of get two related concepts, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. The first is the idea of service or labor. It's this fact that there's an active participation in worship, that there's a giving of effort, there's an activity, there are tasks to do as we worship. And so think Uh, for instance, of the priests of the Old Testament. They had various rituals. They were washing and purification and sacrifices, and all of the things that they did were uh, were worship, were part of their worship for leading the people in worship. This this idea of service uh, is related to worship is also found in the New Testament as people take on tasks as part of their worship of God. The second concept is this idea of bowing the knee. 
right? That worship has this idea of giving honor to someone or something, of paying homage, uh, being humble before. You worship something that is bigger or better or stronger or holier than you, right? Worship isn't something that's between peers. Worship, there's a sense of, of one is higher and one is lower. And uh, again, from a bird's eye view, as we would take these sort of two things together, the biblical picture that emerges is that worship is an active response of a whole person to the greatness of God. Both of these concepts come together as we think about worship before the Lord. We're humble before Him. We're active in our, with our whole person in worship. When our kids were younger, I would, I don't know if this works or not, but I would try to tell them, like, worship is about making a big deal about God. And it's not very elegant, I guess, but it was, I hope it made the point that this isn't about us or what we do. This is about making a big deal out of God. And it's important to recognize as well when we think about worship that there are a lot of, we tend to put it in this other category, like there's the rest of life and then there's worship. And what I, what I want to uh, impress upon us this morning as well is that we often do the things that we do in worship in a lot of other contexts in life. It looks a little bit different, but we give praise to our kids or our spouses when they do something admirable, right? We thank people. We confess our faults, hopefully to those that we love when we let them down. We ask our friends to help us, right? We express a whole range of emotions as part of our everyday life. These are the kinds of activities that we do in worship, but they take on something of a different character when we apply them to God and when we bring them together in corporate worship on Sunday morning, partly because of this higher and lower dynamic. He's the creator. We're the creatures. We depend on him for everything. And partly because the stakes are higher, right? If our lives are a gift to us given by God, then we're accountable to him for each day. And it's right that we should come before him and worship him and thank him and confess and and pray and ask for his help in all of the things that we do as part of corporate worship. So So that's sort of a bird's eye view I also want to look at a couple of distinctions to make about biblical worship. There's a difference between individual worship and corporate worship. Both are in the Bible, of course. You can worship God anywhere and everywhere as you follow Jesus. And in one sense, all of life is worship. It's lived before God. It's meant to give Him glory. But the Bible speaks of a particular kind of worship that happens among God's people. And the New Testament talks of this idea of a shift from the Sabbath to the gathering of God's people on the day of resurrection, on the first day, which of course is Sunday, uh, for a worship service. And as part of our strategic plan, uh, the worship you know, pillar, one of the four foundations of our, of our plan, is particularly about Sunday morning worship. Of course, there are other occasions for corporate worship that happen throughout the calendar year. But the main focus, uh, both for this sermon and for our strategic plan, is on what happens each and every Sunday morning here at Gracie P. Uh, Finally, just one more distinction. It's important to recognize the difference between Old Testament and New Testament worship as as it's described in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's lots and lots of description about worship. 
the ritual actions, the objects that are used, how to build them, the materials used for building them, the specifications for the tabernacle and the temple, the kind of sacrifices to, to be done, what parts you're supposed to do with the different parts of the animals, they go to who, and you know, all of those details were designed to point us to Christ. They were designed to show us the problem of sin and our need for a redeemer. As well, in the Old Testament, we get the the Psalms. That's the hymn book of God's people for corporate worship to be used for, and also for, for particular occasions, as some of them say. We get instructions about what kind of instruments to use and what kind of tunes to sing that are connected with various Psalms. The Old Testament is very prescriptive about worship. And, we get, and when we get into the New Testament, we find something very different in a way. I mean, of course, there's continuity, but the New Testament doesn't talk about church architecture. The New Testament doesn't talk about the uh, way that we build a pulpit or um, how to, the different rituals that we're supposed to use, right? The New Testament gives a description of basic elements of corporate worship, but gives us a lot of freedom in how to do them. And so the New Testament tells us to pray together. But it doesn't tell us what words to use beyond, of course, the Lord's Prayer, which actually is for the 12 disciples, by extension to all of us, right? You know, if we're going to be technical about it, right? But it doesn't tell us how to pray. Should we be standing or sitting or kneeling? Should we pray out loud? Should we pray silently? Should we pray responsively? Or should we pray in unison? All of these details are up to us. We have the freedom to pray in a variety of ways. In the same way, singing is commanded in uh, the New Testament as part of what we do in corporate worship, but not what to sing or what instruments to use or what tunes to use or any of these other kind of details that were so much a part of the worship of Old Testament Israel. And what I think this means in sort of a big picture kind of way is that this freedom is really important because what it means is worship is translatable. It means that worship can take on familiar idioms Uh, for familiar forms, familiar styles, in all kinds of cultures, wherever the gospel goes. There's no cultural expression of biblical worship that's more or less valid than any other. If you ask Nick and Carter what they experienced in worship in Togo, the styles and the elements and what, what people were doing is probably very different from what happens here, right? But that's not one is wrong and one is right, It's the gospel has taken root in that place too. And those people authentically worshiping God because of their culture, because of their background, because of their languages, because of their traditions. Worship looks different because it's translatable. Because it's for the whole world, the worship of God. And I think that's, you know, really important that we think about that. Because it affects the way that we see our worship. We're culturally conditioned. There are instruments that are pleasing to us that were not pleasing to ancient Israelites. Their instruments may not have been pleasing to our ear, right? We're culturally conditioned as part of our worship. And, uh, and that's okay. And so is everyone. And that's a part of what it means that all the earth and all of the peoples of the earth can sing the praises of the Lord. Having said all of that, I want to look at a case study. It's an example of what worship does in the life of a believer. It's Psalm 73. It gives us a picture of the way that worship changes a person. 
that in the course of this psalm, the psalmist is reoriented. One of the powerful things about corporate worship is that we are changed when we worship God in something of a unique way. That's, that's to be expected, not always immediately, but over time, as a part of corporate worship, we're changed. And part of, if we think about how do you grow, part of the way that you grow is, is mental, right? You learn new things. Our mind, with our minds, we grasp new concepts. We understand uh, something, and then we've gained that knowledge, right? And our minds are corrupted by sin, and so we need the truth of the Bible to help us think rightly about God and about ourselves. It's also true that our emotional lives are corrupted by sin. That means we don't feel rightly. And worship, I think, speaks to us partly through our heads as we're taught things, as we learn the words to songs, right? But worship also speaks to us particularly partly through our emotional life. Liturgy and song speak to us emotionally. And we often feel the wrong things about God. We often feel the wrong things about others, even if we don't think them. And worship is part of what reorients us. And so as we read Psalm 73, I want you to listen to the interaction of the mind and the emotions. I want you to hear this psalmist talk about what he thinks and what he feels in relation to God. So Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase wealth. The psalmist is giving us what seems to him to be a very honest look at the world. The world is, in, is full of injustice. The wicked prosper. They're arrogant. They have no struggles. They're proud and they're violent. They're carefree and they're rich. And the psalmist feels envious of them. That's what he feels in verse 3. Worst of all, they taunt God and they act like he doesn't know. And they don't even... Like he doesn't care about all of the things that they're doing. And this isn't a philosophical argument about the problem of evil, right? The psalmist is caught up in their worldview emotionally and mentally. Right? He's been affected by this idea. He's not objective. He, I mean, the wicked aren't always carefree, are they? The wicked don't always increase in wealth, are they? I mean, are the richest people in the world always the most wicked? No, of course not. And so we see that his perspective even is, is warped. It's jaded. What he feels does not line up with reality. Right? And, but this impression leads to a crisis in verse 13. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure 
In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. It seems vain to follow the Lord and try to live according to his laws. Righteousness seems pointless. It feels, even worse than that, it feels like punishment from God. The Ten Commandments feel like punishment from God. And it seems like this is some kind of inner monologue, right? Because he stops himself from actually speaking these words out loud, knowing that it would be a betrayal to God. And yet, he's in this place of being sort of stuck, like vexed, confused. Life is impossible to figure out. God's ways in the world feel different than what God says about himself and his ways in the world. The psalm turns at verse 17. Tell until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on a slippery slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Understanding eluded him until he entered the sanctuary of God. Right? This is a picture of the temple of the Old Testament, of course, where God met with his people. And there he discerned that the world did not go according to his feelings. Rather, he grasped, or maybe re-grasped, the fact that the world was moving towards an endpoint, that God is righteous and just, that God will judge and justice will be upheld, and that those who rebel against him will be called to account because of their sins. So you see what just happened? We get the impression that the psalmist was troubled, he was plagued by doubts, he was envious of the wicked, he was about to slip and fall until he went to worship. And there he found his answer. And my guess, you know, even if this, if, if this is some, something sort of autobiographical, my guess is that he knew intellectually that God is righteous and just. That he, you know, this wasn't breaking news to him. But it seems like he had lost the feeling of it. And he was wandering down a bad path until this experience of worship. Then what happens? The change of perspective produces repentance. Verse 22, 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. It's kind of harsh words about himself, right? These are feeling words. I was grieved. I was sad. I was embittered. I was angry. I was foolish and senseless like, like a cow. The psalmist can be honest but before the Lord about his feelings now. And it's not with this sense of antagonism towards God, like, God, where are you? What are you doing? It's with a sense of repentance. And there's a healing that comes from being honest about ourselves and about our feelings. In fact, if we aren't honest about our feelings, then we're hindered from growing. And worship is part of what has this role of producing a heart of repentance and recognition of what we feel And how what we feel isn't always right. And how sometimes our feelings are foolish. And so in the end of the psalm, then we get to the psalmist finding a deeper place 
in his relationship with God. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. And the focus is no longer on the wicked and what they get away with and all of the bad things that they do. The focus is on the nearness and the character of God. And in these verses, the psalmist reminds us of the promises of God, that he's always with us, that he'll guide us, that he'll take us to glory, that there's a promise of eternity here in the presence of God. And so the psalm begins and ends with this expression of God's goodness. And in the middle, we go on this journey with the psalmist of what does it look like to live that out and how does corporate worship change the equation. There's a great reversal here. The one who was envious of the arrogant now declares, earth has nothing I desire besides you. The power of wealth and greed and grasping for things has been broken. Because God has shown himself to be something better. That God himself is better than all of those other things that the wicked grasp for. And somehow our our psalmist has become satisfied in God. Even if his flesh and his heart were to fail. And I love how it ends at the end with this sense of purpose, with this resolution. I will tell of all of your deeds. Right? The hard experience of doubt and envy And sadness has led to repentance and has led to a place where God's goodness is reproclaimed. The testimony of one who went through a difficult time and now has a story to share about how good God is. Now, of course, I don't want to make it sound like this is simple, as though you go to church one Sunday and all of your doubts will be erased. We don't know how long the psalmist experienced these, these, this vexation, these doubts and, and, and struggles. We don't know the circumstances, and we know it's not simple. God knows it's not simple. We all know that. But the point for us today is about what worship does, that God changes us through worship, that God reorients us, that God gives us a new perspective and a new hope in his promises. So what does that mean? I want to be really practical this morning as we think about our experience of worship at Grace EP on Sunday morning. First, be here. Now, I kind of hesitate to say that because I don't want to sound legalistic and I don't want to sound judgmental. And, you know, like I'm just up here counting noses and I'm really not an attendance taker to a fault. Um... I know that life is busy, I know that we get sick, I know that we get tired, I know that things come up, but as as one who has promised you all to tell you what God's Word says, I can tell you that God's Word says, come, (laughs) worship with God's people. That's part of your calling as a Christian. Hebrews 10.25 tells us, don't give up meeting together, but all the more as you see the day approaching. So, be here. Even if you don't feel like you can be here, 
It's not always easy to worship. Sometimes it feels like we can't say it's well with my soul because it's not well with my soul. That's true. Sometimes we can't sing by faith when we feel like we don't have any faith. Or that our struggle with anxiety makes it to where it's really hard to say, Jesus, I'm resting because I don't feel restful about anything. Like that's the experience of our reality. And so if that's the spot you're in, my invitation to you, of course, is come anyway. You don't have to sing. Just be here. Just be honest. But listen to your brothers and sisters who are singing. And you might find from them faith and encouragement and hope, even if you don't feel like you have any in yourself. It's part of what corporate worship does. There's something else very practical about being here. The Jews had this idea of the Sabbath that goes from sundown to sundown. And it's hard to be here and worship if we're tired, if we stay up late on Saturday night, if our Sabbath preparation doesn't kind of begin the night before. So that, I mean, I know these pews are uncomfortable, but you can fall asleep in them. Right? The, so so it's, it's very practical, right? To get a good night's sleep on Saturday helps us to worship well on Sunday morning. And if you go from Sabbath to Sabbath with your, with your uh, Sunday... I'm sorry. If you go from sundown to sundown with your Sabbath, then by Sunday night, you're kind of like in the mode of getting ready for the week anyway. And it sort of makes sense to me to, to sort of have this idea of kind of a Jewish Sabbath as part of making sure that worship has its right place in our lives. Finally, you know, I used the illustration a couple weeks ago that the church is to be like a greenhouse. God is the one who makes us grow, but we're to be an environment in which spiritual growth happens. And so you have to, to be here and be a part of it. Second, of course, focus on God in worship and not on all the other stuff. It sounds obvious, but it isn't easy either. Our minds are busy because our lives are busy. It's so easily, we're easily distracted by the thoughts of the week ahead and the grocery list and the, anything else that we've forgotten to do. We have a few quiet moments in worship, and sometimes we need that space, and we tend to think about all kinds of other things. There's always the potential for distractions in the service, things that don't go smoothly, preachers that mess up the words or the readings or... We sing the wrong verses or, you know, there are all of these things that can distract us from worship. (laughs) I had a conversation with someone a few years ago who thought that we should have a much shorter and simpler bulletin because the bulletin has all of the stuff in it that we sit there and read, which distracts us from worship. Now, it's something to think about, right? Do our bulletins help us worship? I hope so. But do our bulletins distract us from worship? Right? And the session has responsibility to think about these things in practical ways. And our strategic plan needs further thought and implementation as we are trying to be faithful to that calling of how do we help encourage and support worship of God's people in the church. So it's hard sometimes to focus on God. 
They think the pastor's job, the job of the worship team, and everyone who has a part in the leadership of the worship service is trying to lead in such a way that we get out of the way. It's about pointing people to the Lord without them seeing you. I remember being, uh, as a young pastor, and being very nervous in serving communion because I didn't want to be a distraction, especially in that setting. I didn't want people to think about me and how I'd messed up and, or the words that I'd said or dropping things. or You know, I just wanted people to be able to commune with Jesus. And so I wanted to sort of be out of the way, right? That's, that's kind of our role, and that's what we want to encourage. This isn't a performance up here. This is for all of us. And that's the third point. Corporate worship is for all of us. Sunday morning isn't just about you and Jesus. It's about you and Jesus among all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So you at, at, at home, on your devotional life, you can pray, you can sing, you can read whatever you want, you can do it however you want to. But here in church, our worship has to always be informed by the principle of loving one another. I give up something of what I might most want in worship, what might most speak to me, because I'm not the only one here. And because we're all here and we have a lot of different ideas and a lot of different preferences about worship, that we, we compromise and we work together. And it's expression of our love for one another and our unity that we worship in different ways than we might most prefer ourselves. The joke, of course, about musical styles is that blended worship, that is like a, a mix of contemporary songs and old traditional songs, right? Blended worship makes no one happy because no one gets exactly what they want. It's a joke. <clears throat> it's not true, I hope. Blended worship is to be an expression of love one for another and to be an expression of unity in the midst of diversity. And the variety is helpful in a community of people with different backgrounds and, and different desires. And we try to give thought to that, to balancing the music. We try to give thought to the kinds of readings that we do in the prayers. We try to balance our preaching, both Old Testament and New Testament, through, through you know, expositorily, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And sometimes we'll do a series on different topics, like this one. Right? We try to give a balance. We want to make worship accessible to everyone, from the youngest uh, to our teens, to our adults, that everyone is welcome. And my point is that there's an intentionality that goes into a worship service which hopefully reflects a love for the community as a response of God's love for us. And certainly we don't do this perfectly. Sin taints all of our efforts in every direction. It's a team effort. Sometimes it doesn't go smoothly. But my point is even, in, even there, that the gospel is the good news, that our imperfect, selfish, distracted worship is forgiven. That the psalmist can come honestly before the Lord and say, I wish I had what those wicked people had. He can bring that to the Lord's temple. And there the Lord can change him. And he can say, there's nothing I want more than you, God. That's what happens. That's what's supposed to be our experience as corporate worship. That Jesus calls us to meet together. That our perspective on the world and each other would be changed 
because we're meeting with God. And we find the gospel here, that message is for all of us. So my encouragement to you this morning is just that, to make a big deal about God uh, as you worship him, as we do it every week. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is a privilege to come into your house. And uh, we do want to be the people who want you more than anything else. We pray that you would work that deeply within us, in our minds and in our hearts. Um, bless our efforts. Guide and direct us as we, as we lead the church, as we follow. Lord, we need your help. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.